As we finish our series, Destroyer of the Gods, this week, we're going to focus on 1 Peter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. If you're following along in the Bibles that we provided for you, that's going to be starting at least on page 1201, 1201. You can follow along with the reading there. Peter writes, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, if you do what is right, and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. This is God's Word. So like I said, uh, today we are finishing up this series, Destroyer of the Gods, and uh, it's been a series where we focused on the distinctive characteristics of the early Christian church in its first 300 years as the church went from a small gathering of Christians to a group of millions who took over essentially the Roman Empire. And we've been looking at this series not so much to say, oh, those are some interesting historical facts, although they are. Uh, but to take those distinct qualities and ask ourselves, what do those qualities look like in our generation today? And if we exhibited those same qualities, could Jesus do the exact same thing in our generation that he did for those early Christians? And today we're looking at the, the final characteristic of, of the, or final unique characteristic, excuse me, of that early Christian church, and that's their view on morality, their view on morality. We're calling this uh, Sunday a new way to live. Uh, the Christian version, or excuse me, uh, outlook on reality uh, is really different in two ways. Those two ways are going to be your two main points if you're taking notes with us today. Uh, they are that the Christian church has a unique motivation to its immorality and a different unique direction to its morality. So a different motivation and a different direction. Um, let's first look at the motivation. We're going to go into some detail on this later in the sermon, but for now, what you need to know is that in the Roman world, in the first couple centuries, people were moral to the extent that it was convenient. 
They were moral to the extent that it was convenient. And if you were to look at the Roman world, you would probably actually see a world that's much like the world we live in today, where people are generally pretty good to each other. There's not violence in the streets, there's not drug deals on the street corners, prostitution in the alleys. For the most part, if you live in Mississauga, life is pretty okay, and that was similar to the Roman Empire in the first 300 years. But it was not because of any sort of mandate from on high that people were moral. If you knew the religions of the day, the Roman gods, there was no mandate from those gods that you ought to treat your neighbor a certain way. And so people's morality, or whatever looked like morality, was essentially based on, well, does it work or not? Does it advance my prospects? Does it make me more money? Does it give me more social clout? Does it help me advance in my career? Or maybe on the negative side, does it keep me out of trouble? Does it keep my reputation solid? People were moral to the extent that it was convenient, and you would find that that's pretty much the same today. For the most part, even if people participate in a religion where their deity says that you're supposed to behave a certain way towards your neighbor, um, they pretty much operate under whether it's convenient or not. Does it work? Does it accomplish my goals? Does it get done what I want to get done? Uh, This is really, frankly, because the ultimate god of Western society is money, and we all kind of know that if we're starting to be bad towards other people, we're going to lose money, we're going to lose wealth, or we're going to lose our job, or we're going to lose any number of assets that we have. So in general, people behave because, well, there's an opportunity either to make money, keep money, or grow money. In contrast, the Christian morality of the day, and Christian morality as it should be today, uh, was not because something worked, because it was convenient, but simply because of who God is. Christians were moral because of who God is. You can see this right in the text that we read earlier. Peter, excuse me, writes, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you. In other words, he grounds Christian morality in the reality of God who God is and what God has done. And so Christians, therefore, did not base their morality on, well, does this work or not? They simply asked, what does God say? And I'm going to behave that way, whether it works or not. This is one of the hardest temptations, especially for Western people, to get past. That's the temptation of pragmatism, which is essentially to ask the question, does it work? Does it work? We're all tempted by this, especially when it comes to how we behave. Does it work? Um, let me give you a number of examples. Maybe this will come into focus a little bit more. Um, I was recently talking to a member of our church who was asking me about um, his job. And uh, he was asking about why he should be moral or living according to God's law at his job when, first of all, everyone else at his job is skirting the rules, cutting corners to try to get ahead, and they're doing it, they're successfully doing it, and he's not because he's not willing to compromise. And even though that's the case, he said, even though I'm, I'm not compromising, I'm not even getting a chance to like witness the faith or something as a result of not cutting corners. Like no one's saying like, why aren't you cutting corners? And the answer I gave him was, it's good to do good because good is good. Right? It doesn't matter if it works or if it advances your prospects. Even a good prospect like evangelism, trying to bring people into the faith, it doesn't matter. You do what's good because it's good. When I do marriage counseling, this comes up. If you have a couple who's in any sort of tension, 
Um, and you walk through what, is, what does God expect of husbands, what does God expect of wives, one of the questions that almost always comes up is, but what if nothing changes? What if it doesn't get better? What if it doesn't work? And the answer to that is, it doesn't matter. God said this is what you are supposed to do. So even if it doesn't work, it, it doesn't matter. God has called you to this. I ran into this recently when I was talking to a woman who was interested in our church. She, uh, she called me and she wanted to ask some questions about what we taught. And I was telling her about one particular teaching, and it doesn't matter what it is, but she, she said, why do you teach that if no one out there understands it? If you teach that, people aren't going to come to your church. What's the answer? It doesn't matter if it works. It matters what God says. Okay, so now I've given you three examples where I look pretty good. Let me give you one where I don't look very good. Um, I personally struggle to do what is right if nobody notices. If I don't get a pat on the back or an acknowledgement or a thank you, I find it very hard to do what is right. Maybe you struggle with that same kind of sentiment. Um, Often when, when when we encourage people to work at something in their religious life or church life, one of the other excuses that will come up is, well, that's not my personality, or that's not really the type of person I am. Like we'll say, like, okay, we're all going to try to reach out into our community and try to share our faith. Well, you know what? It's not really my personality. I'm not one to really talk to people about the faith. Or we need somebody to do this service project. No, it's, I'm not really that type of person. Or, or would you think about doing this in your life? Mm, I'm not really into it. You see, that's, that's subtle pragmatism. Does it work for me? You know, notice the Bible as you read it, and it talks about Christian living. It doesn't talk about rights and preferences. It talks about duty and debt. Duty and debt. And think about it. If you owe money to somebody, and they come back to you and say, hey, you need to pay my, the money that you owe me, and you say, it's not my personality to pay people back, what are they going to say? Or maybe you're in the army. Some of you are army people. Um, and... Uh, and your CEO comes to you and says, I need you to do this task, and you say, I'm not really the type of person who does that, what's he going to say? I don't care. Right? The Bible talks about the way that we live towards one another, the way that we live in line with God's word, and not, does this work for me, but is it my duty? Is it the debt that I owe to people because of what Jesus has done for me? But this goes beyond personal. It can get into groups, Right? Uh, churches run into this probably most obviously when they focus a lot on numbers. So if you have a church that's really concerned with getting as many butts in pews as possible, they may be willing to, well, again, compromise on some of the things they teach or just not teach certain things of the Bible in order to get more people in the pews. To be honest with you, if we wanted our church to have a lot of people in it, we could do that. I know the tricks. But I would also not be able to completely preach God's word to you, which is a higher priority, right? Right? Not does it work, what does God say? Uh, see this in our church body. Um, right about the time that I was born, so 1990, our church body started to really press on the idea of outreach. Getting in your community, trying to speak to people about the gospel. Um, and that's because historically our church has been a, a church body that has been built mostly on uh, German immigrants. Mostly. Our church body is a little bit over 150 years old, and for the first hundred or so years of our church body's history, there were just German immigrants flooding into North America. And those German immigrants were having a whole lot of babies. And so we really didn't need to do outreach as a church body because we always just had more people to fill our churches. 
Um, but right about the sexual revolution, 1960s, that completely dropped off. Immigration from German, Germany came, came to a screeching halt, and so did the birth rate. And so about a generation later, 1990, we suddenly realized, hey, all of our churches are declining. And so we started to say, hey, let's do outreach. Not because Jesus says to do outreach, excuse me, not because Jesus says to do outreach, um, but because we realized that our, our pews were starting to empty. That's pragmatism, not what God says. Final, final example. Uh, why is it, and everybody knows this if you're in the nonprofit world at all, why is it that people are willing to give more financially when you tell them what they're going to give to? Churches do this with financial campaigns. We're going to give in order to accomplish some building project or do this program or we just need to make budget at the end of the year. People are more willing to give at those times. Why? Pragmatism. We give because we like to see the effects of our giving rather than just going by what Jesus says, which is give sacrificially because it's good for you. Remember in the Old Testament, people brought their offerings. Do you know what they did with their offerings? They burned them. How'd you like that? Let's, let's gather a, a plate together of all of our offerings. We'll come up here and I'll set it on fire. Not only is that a felony, it's also going to be really frustrating, right, if we do that. Um, so God, of course, lets us see the benefits of our offerings, but the call to give is not something that's based on does it work, but what does God say? And this is the challenge for every one of us, right? Rather than ask ourselves the question, does it work? We ask ourselves the question, is God real? Is God real? Which maybe is a kind of an insulting question to Christians, especially lifelong Christians. Is God real? Well, of course God is real. But let me ask you this. Do you functionally live like he is real? Do you functionally live every day like he actually exists and actually cares about the things that you are doing, thinking, and saying? It's so easy to say, I believe that God is real, but then functionally live like atheists. Every time we don't read God's word, or we're not here to receive his word and sacrament, we act like God is not real, as if he didn't care, or he wasn't going to notice if we weren't here. Every time we try to control our life, make it work out the way that we want, we show that we don't believe God is real, because we don't think he has a plan for us. Every time we worry about ourselves, or our family, or our nation, or our church, we show that we don't believe that God is real, because we think, He's not going to do anything about it, or he's not going to notice, or he doesn't care. Every time we continue in a sin that we know is wrong, but we really want to keep doing it, we show that we don't believe God is real because we think he doesn't notice or doesn't care or isn't deeply hurt by sin. And I could go on, but the, the question we need to continue asking ourselves is this, do we actually believe God is real? Because if we do, we will understand that morality has a unique motivation, not in does it work, is it going to accomplish something? Does it make sense for me? But what does God ask? Maybe you've noticed this in my preaching, at least. I try to emphasize it a lot. I'll, I'll, very often I'll say, you realize that this shows that Christianity is a historical reality. Maybe you've noticed I pressed that point on you quite a bit. It's because I'm subtly trying to get you to ask this question, is God real? Did Jesus really live on this earth? Is he a real person who is also God, who died for your sins and rose again and now has a claim on your life? Is God real is the question that we need to ask ourselves. So the Christian church in its early years was unique in its motivation, right? That it was, it was motivated not by what worked or what could advance my prospects, but what, what did God say? 
But then the second more distinct, I think, and probably worth more of our attention characteristic, is that they had a different or unique direction in the way that they lived out their morality. Um, The world's morality at that time was vertical, while the Christian morality was horizontal. What do I mean by this? Um, I already alluded to this. Uh, If you were worshiping a certain deity in the Roman world, there was really no mandate for you to behave any way towards your neighbor. But there were a number of mandates for how to behave towards the gods. So you would make your sacrifices, or you would see your prayers, or you would come to worship, or you would do whatever, whatever the god asked you to do so that your relationship with the god would be okay. You scratch his back, and he'll scratch yours. Christian morality was based in the idea that Jesus, God, had already come down to us and had done everything necessary for us to save us and make us right with God so that nothing was left to do except to love our neighbor. No longer was Christian love about, like every other religion, about what you did for God, but it was about what you did for one another. And this played itself out in the household codes that show up in a number of places in the scripture. We read one earlier in the service from 1 Peter 2 and 3, but there's a number of them. They show up in in all sorts of places in the epistles, and they all kind of have the same cadence to them where they say, you know, wives, treat your husbands this way. Husbands, treat your wives this way. Slaves, treat your masters. Masters, treat your slaves. Children, obey your parents, and so on. These household codes were built to show every person in the family, in the household, that they had a unique duty, a debt, to live in Christian love to the other people in their family. And this was radically unique for a couple reasons. Um, First of all, it just shows us that in the Christian church, a Christian love was lived out horizontally, right? I think even today we sort of mess this up. We start to think that our religion, our practice of Christianity is vertical. It's before us and God. But it really isn't. Martin Luther said this really well when he said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God's doing pretty okay for himself, like I told the children. God doesn't need you to worship him. It's not like he has low self-esteem or anything like this. What he's asking you to do is live a life of love for one another. And if you work out some of the things that you do in your Christian life that maybe on the surface look like they are for God, you'll realize they're ultimately for your neighbor. For example, gathering and worship. You're all here. Are you here for God? If you said yes, you're wrong. Okay? You're not here for God. God is doing pretty okay. You're here because God promises to bless you here. The Germans have a great word for this. Germans seem to always have a good word for stuff. They call this thing that we're doing right now the Gottesdienst, the God service. They're literally saying that what happens here is you do nothing for God. God does everything for you. You come here and God blesses you with his word. He blesses you with his forgiveness. He blesses you with his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. This is all God towards you. And the result is that you live out of love to your neighbor. Because you've been so deeply loved that you can't help yourself like an overflowing cup to bless your neighbor. And even the fact that you're here blesses all the other people who are here with your friendship and your smiles and your conversation and your encouragement that this word still matters. It's all for your neighbor. How about something as personal as prayer? You often think of prayer as something that's between you and God, right? But why do you pray? Well, you might pray, let's say, because you're really sad. You're really sad about something in your life, so you go to God and pray. Why do you do that? Well, ultimately, so that 
you can be happy around your neighbor so that you can avoid bringing your neighbor down with your sadness because you've worked it out with God. Now, it doesn't mean it's wrong to work through your sadness with your neighbor, but that prayer is sort of a release valve for that emotion. The same with anger. Let's say you're frustrated about something. Why do you go to God and pray about it? So that you don't take it out on your neighbor. What if you're asking for something? You're saying, God, I want this. If you're asking for something that's purely selfish, then God's not going to answer your prayer. The scripture is very clear on that. But if you're asking for something so that you can be a blessing to your neighbor, God wants to answer that prayer insofar as it will be. Even prayer is something that is a blessing for my neighbor. Because ultimately, all of Christianity is like a river flowing downhill from God through us to our neighbor. That's the unique direction of Christian faith and Christian love. But what these household cults also did is they gave us a window into um, how that morality was specifically lived out towards certain people groups. So you saw it in the first Peter text that we read. Um, wives were uh, addressed directly, husbands and slaves. But if you go to some of the other household codes, you'd find that there are children addressed, uh, masters are addressed in different places. Uh, this idea that you could address people who were considered kind of the unlovables of society was a completely unique thing in Christian love because it came from the nature of God who loves all people. So these household codes led to the loving of the unloved in Rome, and that particularly played itself out in women, slaves, children, and minorities. What I want to do is I want to just slowly walk you through each of these groups and show you how it played out, okay? So first, let's, let's talk about women. The early Christian church gave extremely high value to women. In that society, uh, women were treated as second-class citizens, their testimony was not admissible in court. They were also hold, held particularly to a sexual double standard um, where men in the society were allowed to have sex with pretty much whoever they wanted to while women were required to be faithful only to their husbands. And we actually have a quote from one of the Romans uh, in, in that time period. He says, um, we have our concubines for pleasure, we have our slaves for our daily needs, which is a sexual euphemism, and our wives to bear us sons and take care of our houses. That was their attitude. The Christian church, though, completely turned this idea on its head. To use an anachronistic phrase, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter would have been considered radical feminists in their day. First of all, both Paul and Peter, in their household codes, and you can look at all of them, they always address women first. They always say, wives, be this way towards your husbands, and then husbands, be this way towards your wives. In their culture, you never spoke to the woman before you spoke to the man. And yet Paul and Peter codified this in Scripture that they spoke to the women first. They gave them the dignity of addressing them as equal citizens, equal members of the house, equal in value to their husbands. Beyond that, uh, the way that Paul and Peter talked to the husbands of the family also dignifies the women. Because instead of saying, husbands, you can just go out and be unfaithful in whatever way you see fit, uh, the, the scripture very clearly says, husbands, you love your wives, you sacrifice for your wives, you're willing to give up your needs and wants for your wife, you're willing to give up your life for your wife, you're willing to sacrifice all of your comfort for your wife. This was a radical idea. And the result was that women flocked to the Christian church. Um, some of the estimates of the dem demographics of the early Christian church say that the early Christian church was almost two-thirds women. Why? Because the Christian church was the only place that was dignifying women as equals with men, 
and providing them things like a husband who's going to be faithful to them and love them, and even if they're not married, the equal status of being a valued member of the community. Somebody was just trying to teach me <laughs> that the Apostle Paul was a misogynist and that, uh, that his writing about women in the texts like this that we read is so anti-woman. Um, the very opposite is true if you look at the scripture. Um, what about slaves? Uh, slavery in that society was slightly different than what we think of in uh, like 19th century North American race-based slavery, but there was still some of the characteristics of the idea that the person who was enslaved was a lesser human being. Again, there also, testimony was not admissible in court. Some writings that we have see them being treated as actually like subhuman on an essential level. Um, slaves were not highly valued in the society. In fact, most of them died young because they were worked too hard and not treated well. But the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and their household codes address slaves directly and say to them, not only do you matter, but you matter as much as your master, who in their worship gatherings would probably have been sitting right next to him or at least close to them, which of course would have been a radical idea. But on top of this, the work that you do, the service that you render to your master, even if your master is a jerk, is a, great, is a righteous work before God. It is valuable. It is good. Slaves were given an amazing dignity to see that even though they were considered less than in their work and in their status, they were valued in the Christian community. What about children? Um, Peter doesn't specifically address children in this text, but the Apostle Paul does in, uh, in many places in his household codes. And uh, this idea that children would be treated as equal, equal in status with the adults in the room was also a radical idea. I mean, that society, children were considered sort of like, um, like an instrument to advance my own causes. Essentially, children were there for my benefit. Whether it was because they were going to carry on my family name, they were going to be great warriors, they were going to somehow bring honor to the family, that was the reason people had children. The result was that many children didn't make it through childhood because they were either aborted or they were given to this thing called exposure, where a child would be born and then the child would be thrown onto the dump heap or thrown out into some arid place so that it would die because the family didn't want it. And this was particularly the case with little girls because in their society, little girls don't grow up to be warriors and bring honor to the family. But it wasn't much better for the boys. Even though more boys probably survived abortion and exposure, uh, pedophilia was common in that society, especially against young boys. And so if you were a girl, there was a good chance you weren't going to live. And if there was a, you were a boy, there was a good chance you were going to grow up with some sexual abuse in your life. It was not a good place for children. But the Apostle Paul particularly addresses children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. The Christian church valued children. It said children have spiritual agency. They are just as valuable to their Father in heaven as the adults in the room, as you can even see from Jesus' words that we read earlier. Let those little children come to me, because if someone is not willing to receive the kingdom like them, they will not receive it. And the result was, the Christian church had a lot of children. Not only were they having a lot of children just biologically, because they would not give in to things like abortion or exposure, but they were also adopting many of those little girls, particularly, who were being thrown out by their parents. People say, of course, that yes, there was 
evangelism that was happening in the early Christian church. People were converting into Christianity. But demographers say at least the primary reason that the church grew so much is their value of children, that they were willing to adopt, that they were willing to have large families, and that's what grew the Christian church. Finally, minorities. Uh, minorities are not particularly addressed in any one of the household codes, and that's because uh, the Bible just doesn't have, frankly, uh, a care for the concept of race. That is a very modern idea. The Bible just treats all humans the same, regardless of where they come from or what their skin color is. But we know that in that culture, minorities were treated as less than. If you went to the Colosseum in Rome for the gladiatorial games, um, something that would happen is very often something like a, a theater production that would recount a great battle. And uh, of course, the losers or those people who were going to come out on the, the wrong end of the theater production were always portrayed as minorities, usually racially minorities. So in that society, you can imagine if that's what you're watching as your entertainment, that's what you start to believe is true. You start to believe people who are not Roman are less than. But of course, we've already covered this multiple times in this series. Christianity was the first trans-ethnic religion that Egyptians and Romans and Jews and, and all nations from that area could all come together and worship the same God. They were given the dignity of being seen as fully people. So, in summary, the Christian church loved all people, regardless of age or sex or status or race. And I think as modern Western people, we would like to nod our heads along and say, yep, that's exactly what Christianity is about and that's what we're about. But I want to challenge us on that a little bit. Do we really love all people? Do we really see all people as inherently valuable? As worth our time and our energy and our resources? One of the troubling trends that I see in our society today is the reduction of a person's humanity to group identity. Let me say that again. The reduction of a person's humanity to their group identity. Essentially saying you are this type of person because you fit into this group. It's probably easiest to see this in like generational stereotypes. So if you're a boomer or a Gen Xer or a millennial or a Gen Zer, there's a certain stereotype that goes along with that. And it leads to things like saying, well, you're just a millennial, that's just how you think. Or, okay, boomer. We reduce a person down to the stereotype that we've built in our minds of what that group of people is like, and we reduce, therefore, their humanity. What if you are a boomer, but you realize the weaknesses of your generation? Or you're a millennial and you realize the weaknesses of your generation? Or you're an Xer or a Gen Z or you feel the same way? Just because you were born in that time period does not mean that everything about you fits into those categories, and yet how quickly we reduce a person's humanity by saying, you're no more complex than the caricature that I've built for you in my mind. I think this happens politically, in terms like liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican. <laughs> He's just a conservative. The liberals always, what are we doing? We're reducing a person's humanity. We can see this if you pay attention to politics. People who may have voted for the liberal or the conservative party in our political system don't always align with everything that those parties stand for. And what even really is a conservative or a liberal nowadays anyways? Can you define that? Is there a universal definition? Or have you created a caricature by which you can dehumanize another person into something that's easy for you to understand rather than caring about the complexity of their humanity? 
One that's particularly troubling to me right now is anti-vax. Our church is never going to come out and say you should or shouldn't get a vaccine because, frankly, the Bible doesn't talk about that. But the moment we put people into a group identity, we dehumanize them. What does it mean to be anti-vax? Is it that you hate all vaccines? You hate this vaccine? You hate particular qualities of the vaccine that if it was changed slightly, you would take it? What does that mean? And to what extent are you anti-vax? But when we use a term like that, we dehumanize the people into a caricature that we have created for ourselves rather than dealing with the complexity of their humanity. We do not love them. We make them other. And while we might never say, like the Romans did, that they are lesser in society or they are not able to vote, although our society has tried some things like this, we feel that way. You're not a good person because of this group identity I've given you. That cannot be true of us Christians. We love all people, even if they don't align with us, even if we don't agree with them, even if they don't live the same way that we live. We love all people. If I can press you on a second one, I want to talk about children a little bit. Um, and the reason I pick children particularly is because, though I totally agree that we have growth to do in treating women well and employees or slaves well and minorities well, all three of those groups are being advocated for right now in our society. Children are not. And we as the church need to advocate for children. I think we would all agree, at least if you're honestly reading the Bible, that abortion is a sin. But do we realize how bad of a sin it is and how hard we ought to fight against it? Do you remember when the children of Israel in the Old Testament went into the promised land? Do you know why they went into the promised land? God tells us, this is Deuteronomy 9, he says, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So God says, I'm going to give you the promised land, not because you're good, not even because I'm gracious, because those guys are bad. They're really bad. And you know what they were doing? Deuteronomy again. God says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates, especially that they burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. They killed their children. And God says, that is the cherry on top of all of their wickedness, which I need to stop. I need to get rid of that. Could the same thing be true? In our generation? That God sees the inherent value of children the same way? And that a society who has for years killed their children before they're even born deserves God's wrath? And ought we not to fight against it? Not simply because we hope God doesn't destroy us, but because it's right. But let's take it out of the, the realm of abortion for a second. What about... When, when couples, even Christian couples, say, I don't want to have children right now because, well, I might have to lower my standard of living, or it might be inconvenient for me, or it might mess with my schedule, or I kind of want to go back to work, or once again, it's not really my personality, or I can't handle it. What are they doing? They're going against God's clear word that children are a blessing, that those who receive many children from the Lord are mightily blessed, and while I'm not saying every single use of contraception ever is a sin, I'm asking us to examine our hearts. 
Do we love children? Or do we see them as annoying? As a problem? As something that gets in the way, an obstacle to the way that we want to live? And particularly when it comes to the birth control pill. Um, I realize women don't always just use the birth control pill to stop pregnancy, but we have to be honest that the birth control pill has abortifacient qualities to it. The way the pill works is that it allows a sperm and an egg to fertilize, but it does not allow that human being to implant into the uterus of its mother so it dies. We have to be honest about that. But what about after children are born? Do we say we need them to go into another room? They need to stop bothering us? They need to go to daycare so that I can do what I want? Or do we love them? Do we treat them as our equals before God? And again, I'm not saying that putting your kid in daycare is a sin, but I'm asking us to examine our hearts. Do we love children? Or are they a problem? The Christian church uniquely loves all people. The unlovable, the people who cannot provide anything for them. Simply because Jesus did. To this we were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Christ suffered. He was willing to go through, first, the discomfort of being infinite and making himself finite, then suffering everything that it is to be a human in this disappointing, corrupt world, then suffering death on a cross for our sins, all so that he could save us and love us, though we would not have chosen him on our own, and continue to fail in our love for him. Christ suffered for us, and so we also ought to be willing to suffer for our neighbor. To be willing to say, I'm going to do what is right, even for my my spouse who maybe isn't loving me the way that she or he should. Not because it's going to make my marriage better, but because it's right and God calls me to this in Jesus. I'm going to bear with my sinful children. Not because they're going to love me perfectly or grow up the way that I want or make me look good in every social situation, but simply because I've been called to this in Jesus. I'm going to go deal with my, my difficult friend at church or my difficult pastor or my difficult coworker or whoever it is in your life that is sinful, not because they're going to change or because it's going to make my life any easier, but because it's right and Jesus calls me to this. So to the extent that you realize what Jesus has done for you, to the extent to which that melts your heart and you understand that real love of that real God who really came down to really die for you, you will want to love your neighbor. And if you don't, if you find it difficult, if you find it challenging, go back to Jesus to see what he has done. Know that it has forgiven you and it has now empowered you, given you an example to live out in your love for your neighbor. So let me finish with two things. First of all, I've mentioned this a couple times in this series, um, but there is this great document from the early second century called the Letter to Diognetus. It's a letter between two Christians that almost perfectly summarizes the attitude of the Christian church at that time. I want you all to read it. And so I've printed off a number of copies there at the back table. I'm going to ask when the offering time comes that maybe one or two of you would go back there and hand one out to each family unit. It's only about 10 pages long and it's really wide margins. So it's only going to take you like 10 or 15 minutes to read. Read it, please. And be inspired by what your brothers and sisters in Christ who went before you lived like so that we can live that same way in our generation. And then second, 
Um, this series is a lot. The unique characteristics of the Christian church have overwhelmed me as I have continued to meditate on them. They have convicted me in my life as a decadent Western person who wants all my comforts in my life the way that I want it all the time. And if you've been paying attention and you love Jesus, I'm sure the same thing has been happening to you. And the tough thing as we focus on the behavior of Christians is that there's not a whole lot of Jesus and his gospel in a series like this. First of all, don't worry. Our next series is the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go through a number of Sundays on Luke and just see Jesus. But I don't want to dismiss this and say, wow, that was interesting or that was challenging. I want this to become our identity. And I want to know if you're willing to do it. We don't need to change overnight. In fact, change to being a community like this is going to take probably decades. But with every Sunday of saying, this community is a priority, I will learn from God's word, I will try to make change in my life. Over those decades, we can become this community. Jesus didn't allow Cross of Life to be a church just so we could exist until he comes back. He created us to be a community that's a light to this, com- to this city. So do you want to do that? Do you want to go there with me? I almost want that question to not be rhetorical because I actually want to know. One of the things that I talk about with Johanna is, first of all, how much potential I see in our congregation. What an amazing group of people who do love each other, who are small enough to know each other, who have amazing gifts and talents. I mean, if anywhere can do it, this can be a church that can be that type of community. But one of the other things I struggle with is knowing if when I preach to you, you listen. Not just do the sound waves go in your ears, But do you drive home and you think about it? Do you pray about it? Do you meditate about it? Do you ask your spouse, what did you get from the sermon? How are we going to make that happen in our life? Are you willing to do that with me? It's all under God's grace. We'll continue forgiving each other when we fail because Christ suffered for us. But I want us then to consider, are we willing to suffer for one another? Let's pray. Jesus, you have called us to an amazing vision, a community that loves like no other community, that is motivated not by what works for our society, but what is right, and a love that is born out in our neighbor. Only you can make that happen among us. So I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, move our hearts to love your word and to want more of it, to love one another in ways that are are difficult, are, are sacrificial. I ask that you would make me a pastor, who speaks your word clearly so that your people can know it and know exactly what you expect and what you have done for them. And I pray your grace over all of it. As I fail as a pastor, as your people fail, as brothers and sisters to one another, I ask that your grace would come on all of us and be spoken through us to one another. So rather than being a community that's trying to live to some standard, we know that the standard has already been achieved and we are free, free to love one another in you.